Praise be to God as we gather together and jump into a new series, wrapped up Luke, just a short little series in Luke. It's always amazing to hear how God uses suffering and hurt, and it was great hearing from Ashley, and I'm always reminded that when hard times come, God looks at them very differently than we do where we go, oh no, what? God's like, yes, I can't wait to draw them close to me. I can't wait for salvation to come either for the first time or again, that it'll be experienced in a deeper and real way. And so in the past couple years, getting phone calls and through conversations, the same theme of hurting hearts and broken homes over and over and, and hearing relational just shrapnel of, of spiritual warfare or things that just kind of were pushed down the road and before the, the, the whole thing just fell apart and, and, and not seeing and not hearing enough of, of Jesus' glory or his love in there. And so when we looked at this, this series, looking at the reality, whenever you hear a marriage series, the singles or, or people in the, in the room that aren't married are like, sweet, I'll just mail it in and show up to, this isn't about me, but really... When you hear our mission statement, that's a summary of John 17, Jesus' prayer for us, that we would know him in that relationship. We are made for relationship to know God, which is salvation, grow in that relationship with him and others, and then go make disciples. This, this image of the summary of the book of Ephesians that really highlights the part of discipleship that we'll be looking at, the relationship in the home, healing these hearts and strengthening homes. We see in the middle, the red sphere is the initial of the five spheres where we we do our life. And so often as believers, we don't acknowledge the spiritual warfare sphere that our life is taking place with the backdrop of that warfare. And in the middle, we see that this, for the believer, God planned our salvation. Jesus accomplished it. The Holy Spirit seals it. That's our identity in the middle. The core of who we are is abiding in Christ. And then you see above that of Ephesians 1 getting into Ephesians 2 where we were spiritually dead. Now we're alive by the grace of God. He saved us. We have a new family in the church. We spent a lot of time with Revelation and and going through Ephesians and, and getting this knowledge, this backdrop as we jump back into Luke and really we're found a, the foundational truth of where we stand on the gospel, our church family that's helping us know God more, grow in relationship and then go make disciples. But this, this series is gonna be really focusing on the home and family, which is that next, the third sphere, Ephesians 5, 21 through the beginning of six before we look at the world and, and where we go and, and have most of our moving and being in school, uh, in employment or having employees. And then uh, lastly, that fifth sphere of the spiritual realm. We look at this backdrop and we, we look at really in our home and in, in a marriage relationship, whether you're married, you were married, or are hoping to be married, at some level, at some context, there's a lot of hurt and, and whether you acknowledge there's hurt uh, or not, we all need healing. Jesus is the healer. It was great hearing how God knew that the hurt that even Ashley was like, wow, God needed me to do this so that he could heal me through this. We look at the beginning of Genesis where God creates 
looks at Adam and is like, oh, shoot, it's not good for him to be alone. What's the mission and purpose of marriage is the first question. We're going to hit three things there and then move into the five applications. I confess so often I love to teach God's, lo- God's love, the gospel, and then you, you walk out weighted with that goodness, but not always given the tools of how to do it. And I'm like, it's easy. You just pray and let the Holy Spirit do it. Duh. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Obviously, have you read that? And most of you are like, I didn't, that, that even made it more confusing. That's not helpful. Like, I can't be perfect. What are you doing, pastor? Uh, I don't have the degree. I'm not there. The reality is I'm, I'm there with you. What is the purpose of marriage? This has been a good reminder as I get these phone calls or I'm in this conversation. It's like, huh, what is the purpose of marriage? Do they know the purpose of marriage? Are they just in this relationship because this is what their parents did or grandparents did? Is this what you think you should do because that's the culture around you? What is the purpose of marriage? First, as we look at the, the purpose that God puts forth for humans is to glorify him by enjoying him forever. Everything we say, think, or do should bring glory to him as we enjoy him and what he's done for us. But for our stories and our experiences, there's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of confusion. So it's like, how do I, how do I bring you glory if I don't even know you exist? How do I know you're doing this? How do I know this is your will? These are questions that often come up. And we see when we look at marriage, for instance, we see that he is the creator, not just of marriage, but of all things. Marriage was his idea. So this institution that he came up with was actually for his glory and our good. And we see that the design for marriage starts with him as the creator. Then he invites Adam, which he needs a couple. So he creates Eve. So a man and a woman And then there's a covenant, and this covenant is unique because the covenant we just read about was the covenant to do better, to seek the better of the other regardless of how they treat you. That's what a covenant is. It's I'm committing to make your life better regardless of how you treat me. Regardless of how you hurt me, I'm going to continue to serve you, prop you up, protect you, provide for you, and support you. That's the covenant of marriage. And that's what brings God glory because that's his covenant to us. That's the same thing that he's been doing. We see, if you're like still hung up on the first question, God wants glory. We see in Psalm 111.3, for instance, where everything God does reveals his glory, including marriage and family in the home, everything he does. When you look at sports, No matter if you were a Bulls fan or not, as a kid, I had the whole Bulls team poster on my wall. We were joking about it at the beginning of church. It was like, man, you know, most of us, if you're like me, you shopped at Payless for your shoes, and and there was the not Jordans at Payless. You know, you had any other shoe, but not those. And then the kid would roll out with Jordans. It's like, man, if I could have those and the pump and everything, I'd be way faster and jump way higher. And no matter who you were, when Jordan got on the court, everyone was in awe. Like the stuff he did on the court was amazing. Like normally people could just try and shoot a free throw and most don't even make that. And he just said, forget it, I'll dunk it from the free throw line. It's It's incredible. No matter who you are, you're going 46 east. And by God's mercy and grace that may be bestowed upon you, it's a clear day and you see the coastline. Young or old, everyone freaks out. What is, oh my goodness, this is amazing. 
And if God's especially delighted in you, he'll give you a sunset with a little bit of clouds. And the, the picture he paints before you is his glory. He's like, give me some. Yep, I did that. Give me some glory. And no one, whether you acknowledge him or not, stands and says, that's stupid, and drives away. They're, they keep pulling over, slamming on the brakes, and they just have to take in his glory. And that's just a hint of it. Everyone told me, and particularly one friend was so stoked on birth stories. And he was like, man, just wait. When Micah's born, you're going to like lose your mind. And then sure enough, that was not only a little bit stressful or a lot stressful, but the labor to see a baby born was a miracle of like, wow, God, you created this thing that's now a child. An even greater miracle is he's 11 years old. Couple bumps and bruises, but we got him to 11, okay? Mostly the miracle is he's my son. My daughters help with that. So God's looking out. The amazing thing is, is that God has always been revealing, always been showing you his glory and his goodness. And he wants everyone to know him. And he wants the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He wants the hurting to be healed. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants forgiveness for all. And he gives us these images, one being marriage, of how he is going to get glory from that. We see... One of the best-selling movies that was off when I was growing up that everyone was like, we've got to watch this, and and apparently it was a book. I didn't know that. I thought the book came after the movie, but apparently you write books and then you make movies. Not a huge reader unless it's scripture and theology, so just confession there. But that's kind of how things work, and these like series, Nicholas Sparks books made these movies, and and, you know, the whole kind of premise of the notebook was this long-lost love, and, and they, they died together. And, and that actually, true life story. 60 years of marriage. Dinah has dementia. A couple years ago during COVID, she didn't die of COVID. She died of other complications. But she had dementia, and her husband's care facility closed down during the COVID stuff. And so he kept sneaking into her room and stay in the night, which freaked her out. So she kept yelling at the nurses, this creepy old man keeps coming into my room and trying to stay the night with me, and I keep having to kick him out. And it, it, we get a chuckle, but it does give you, it gives me goosebumps, just 60 years of marriage. What is that? What does that that compels them? It's the covenant. It's God's, the creator, to get the glory between a man and a woman to have this covenant commitment to pursue the other, to protect, provide, and do good to the other, despite when they make it hard, despite when they do evil to you. The two purposes is God's glory, and second, it's his love. We see the love in that story of 60 years, knowing what that must have taken. We see when God wanted to show us a picture of his love in Sunday school and and youth group, I was bummed they never told us this story. Um, I always thought it'd be cool to be a prophet or a pastor because you see pastors get up there in their tuxedos and it's like, I've never seen that before. And now as I was older, I'm like, I'm glad I don't have to wear that every Sunday. But you, you read about prophets like Elijah and they get a fiery chariot up to heaven. Like that's pretty cool. You don't have to die. And then you read about Moses, who's tired of being in the desert, and he gets to walk through the sea on dry land with a bunch of Egyptian gold. Like, there's some pretty cool highlight stories in the Bible of what God does. And then you get to John the Baptist, and it's like, all right, so he eats honey. I'm all about honey, but the, the, the locust thing, like, I don't know if I could, and his wardrobe's 
like a like a uh, you know potato knapsack deal, like hair. That's kind of I don't know if I'm down for that. And then you read about Jeremiah, who literally is God's prophet. His mouthpiece never sees someone come to know the Lord. Not like Billy Graham or Greg Laurie, who fill stadiums and everyone raises their hand. They're like, "Yes, please, Jesus." Jeremiah is God's. God's like Jeremiah, speak for me. Okay, Lord, no one's going to believe you. Have a good ministry. Like nowadays, he would not have a church or pulpit, but he's God's prophet. And then my favorite, which is the one they never told us about, Hosea. Hosea is praying for God's will. God, man, I can't wait for this godly wife. Who are you going to give me? Maybe it's like this woman of faith, like generations of pastors. And, and God's like, hey, I, I have your wife. Oh, great. Um, what church? Is it the Baptist or Presbyterian? I really kind of don't like you. But hey, you know what? Like just someone that loves you. Like, I don't know. You got stuff either way. Uh, no, it's um, go to Spearmint Rhino, the Gentleman's Club. What? Is that a new denomination? I don't know what. Uh, no, it's the, it's the strip club. I want you to go there. Uh, like, is it around back? Like, is there a house behind, in the neighborhood behind there? Or no, I need you to go there and at, at 11 o'clock she'll be on stage. That's who you're going to marry. God, I don't know how to get in. Like, I've never, I'm a prophet. Like, I don't know how to do that. No, that's who you're going to marry. And she's a prostitute. She's going to sell her body. She's going to run away from you. And I'm going to provide the means to buy her back because I want to show the world my love that redeems you, that runs after you, that forgives you, that no matter how far you go, no matter how culturally sinful and broken and bruised and disgusting you can think you are, I still want you. That's my love. And that's why God has a marriage created for his glory and to show us his love. It's amazing. Because in Genesis 2.18, our culture, like Satan does, twists it. You read that and it's like, oh, great. Adam's made this first created and now he needs a helper. So I'm just a helper. That name helper is actually the name God gives himself. God chooses to name himself in the relationship between him and his covenant people. I'm the helper. I'm the one who's going to help you, who's going to save you and redeem you. I'm the one who's going to restore you. So once again, from Genesis 2, God is elevating the role of a woman saying, no, you actually have equal parts to help. You have giftings. You have character qualities that need to help Adam and Adam has things that are going to help you and you're going to help each other and serve each other for my glory and your good. Isaiah 54 5 says, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And then that sets up revelation that we got to spend some great time in seeing all of the craziness and spiritual warfare that's going on ends with a wedding feast where Jesus, again, uses the image of a bridegroom who's come back for his bride, who's prepared his bride for this amazing wedding feast. When we know, don't know what God's plan is for marriage or, or the home and discipleship in the home, what happens is just a process of ungodliness and, and culture raising your kids rather than you raising your kids to know and fear the Lord. And I know there's going through a series like this, you know, 80% of it, we're focusing on that, that marital relationship, the marriage image. And, and there's people that have been hurt. Your marriage is, is hurtful. Your marriage is hard right now. Every day you're praying for more grace and strength. And those who've been out of abusive relationships where, where divorce 
whether you filed or he filed or she filed, it's, it's one of those things that while God's against it and ultimately wants restoration, there's times where divorce occurs. And that's a story that many of you have a chapter in your life that's still painful and hurtful. I'm not divorced. And, and really, to be honest, if it wasn't for Jenna's love and commitment to the Lord, I don't know where I would be. I might be divorced. When we had premarital counseling, our, our counselor said, you can't have this word in your vocabulary. Just delete it now. And it's interesting when, when these phone calls come in or conversations come, it's always when marriage gets hard, the community, your relationships, are they helping your marriage or hurting it? And, and every time the, the D word gets thrown out, it's friends saying, oh, you should leave him. Oh, you should leave her. Or, hey, what does God's word say? How often have your friends been like, hey, how's your marriage going? Are you giving God glory through your marriage? Hey, are you loving your spouse like Christ loved the church guy? Hey, are you submitting and respecting your husband? Is that a common conversation you have? No, I don't get texts like that. I don't get phone calls and I'm a pastor. Like if anyone's gonna have that conversation, it probably would be me. And we'd be throwing Greek words around too, but no, that's not common for me either. So now we're all on the same, maybe when we look at God's plan and we realize we're a man and a woman, regardless of what culture is trying to redefine stuff, let's look at who created this marriage thing and let's look at why he created it. As we see this discipleship model that we're talking about, it's in real life, it's in relationships. This image that um, I've seen for years and, and it helps us understand how we pursue God through our marriage relationships and we pray for our friends who are married and support them if we're single or looking to be married one day. It's through this discipleship in the church. We see this image of a triangle where Jesus, God being at the top and the husband on the left and, and the, the wife, the woman on the right. There's a verse in Hebrews 12, one through two that really depicts this image where we are all surrounded by a cloud of witnesses in verse one. So let us lay aside the weight and sin that, that really clings so closely to us, hindering us and, ver and continuing. It says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. We're all in a race. Some of us are called to be single. Some of us are, are looking to be married maybe again or in the future. And some of us are married. So there's our race that we have. And we're looking to Jesus. When you're looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith in verse two, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when you see him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, reminded that this world is full of hurt and pain and we carry some of that. But he's the healer, he's the savior. And so when we look at the next step is, is we focus on Jesus, and we make our way to Jesus, running that race, you look to the right or to the left, and there's your spouse running with you. You're equally yoked. This is huge. So often it was like, oh, they have to be a believer. They mark a box, I'm a believer, and you're good, right? No. I saw this play out with my grandpa as a kid who, who got remarried and, and found out she marked a box, was baptized, and said, all right, we're not talking about... Jesus anymore. I got baptized. We're done. We're not going to church. And that crushed his spirit. And to find out later, he was so passionate about the Lord before that and having to deal with that tension because the equally yoked is not just if you're a believer, it's are you committed equally 
to following the Lord. Because if one of your spouses is saying, if your husband's like, no, we're doing club sports, club soccer, football, soccer, all on Saturday. You're like, oh, I'm trying to go to church early. Or you try and show up and help set up for VBS, and your wife's like, no, sorry, we have all these commitments in the afternoon. We're not going to spend any more time with the body of believers. What is this life group stuff? We're not doing that. We're not following the Lord. We're not serving. We check a box. We get baptized. We don't talk about God. We're done. That's this next image. And that, when you see you're not equally yoked, it's a burden. And then you start judging, and you start blaming, and you start shaming, and that's not good. And Paul says, hey, when you're married to an unbeliever or you're married to someone who's not following the Lord, walking with the Lord, can you just leave? No, that's an opportunity for God's glory and for you to demonstrate God's love, fulfilling the purpose of marriage still. The image of marriage is bearing with that person, praying that they might see God's love flowing to you and through you and be saved through your ministry to them. So we see the importance of being equally yoked We win, we're called to win. We're more than conquerors in Christ. We're called to be winners, not losers. We're called to be the the best. And the disciples got this. They kept arguing about who's the best. They're like, who's the best? Who's the best disciple? And Jesus is like, good, I love the competitive spirit. Here's how you win, by losing. It's awesome, I love it. It's like so helpful because our culture loves to just come at the, the Christians and, and everyone's like, what do we do? Well, Jesus told us to do. We win by losing. Every time we've, we've talked about this and Jesus modeled it perfectly. They're sitting there arguing who's the best and Jesus says, I'm the best at serving. That, you need to write that down. I'm the best at serving. Are you the best in your house at serving? Are you outdoing your spouse at serving one another? Because your kids will catch on to that competition. You, know, you should have a chart. Who served the most this week? At least in theory, right? I thought that'd work, but my girls are smarter. Like, yeah, dad, you can keep cleaning the kitchen, the chicken coop. You got it. Way to go, dad. (laughs) Killing it. I'm not. Nope. No, we're good. You are the winner at serving. Good job. Jesus said that in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Here's how we pursue God's glory and allowing God's love to flow to us and through us in our marriages. We win by losing. It's the foundation of servanthood. So we see this image, instead of going up, making our lives be better, have more money, be more disciplined, eating healthier, only raw foods, no packaged foods, and exercising and reading our Bible, all that. I hear that all the time. It's like, man, that's, that's, that's a good truth, but I'm, it's hard to do. Let's make it easier. You just win by losing. You just win by serving. You go down decreasing so that God must increase. And this is the image we see from Philippians 2, 3 through 8. When we focus on Jesus, we serve others at our cost. That's why as kids, it's, it's amazing because they understand the cost of serving. They can't continue to watch their show. That was my cost. Every time I, it was like right at the end of the video game where I'm beating the boss, my mom would know. It's like she's peeking in the room. Hey, can you take out the trash now? It's like, no, I gotta beat the boss. Or the, the show's wrapping up and it's going into the last commercial break and you're like, it's gonna, I can't do it now. Ah, it costs us to serve others. It costs Jesus too. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I had no clue I was this selfish 
and prideful until I read that verse. And I was like, oh. The Holy Spirit was like, yeah, that was actually written for you. Like, it was written to the Philippian church, but you needed that because you're actually pretty selfish. When you think about how many other people have needs and think about how often, especially as a guy, when Paul's writing this, he's like, hey, husbands, you love your body. You love to eat the steak and the in and out and all the good stuff. And you love to go golfing. You love to have these hunting. You love to have these experiences. Treat your wife with that same kind of passion and pursuit and drive. Because if you, if you love your wife that way, then you'll love yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. The only way to do any of this more, this is the first of five ways we can pursue God's glory and love. The only way is if we have Jesus' mind, if we've been sanctified, if we know God and are saved and grow in this thought, desire, and actions like Christ, and that's only him. Who though we, who, sorry, Jesus says, Paul says about Jesus in verse six, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It wasn't just leaving heaven to come to earth. It was, again, humbling himself, again, in our place on the cross between two thieves that we might be saved. Guys, don't wash the dishes expecting to get something good later. Give her a massage, wash the dishes expecting to give more good things to her and not expect anything in return. The second point, when we focus on Jesus, we need to use his strength to endure. As we saw that in Hebrews 12, one through three, verse three says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's hard in any relationship, especially one where you committed to seek the better of each other and they're hurting you or they're chastising or the words that cut you down instead of build you up or the, the selfish actions where they keep repeating that. But Jesus didn't give up and that's his spirit in you and that's his mind that we have to keep the enemy away and the spiritual warfare and, and keep in God's word and then surround ourselves with believers who are gonna help the marriage not hurt it and say, hey, I'm praying for you. Let's pray against the spiritual attacks. That's been the biggest thing coming to this church as we, as we do believe in the Trinity, one God and three persons. When stuff goes down and it's gone down before and, and all of a sudden we get into an argument and I'm like, I mean, I, guilty for sure. Like I blew it. But this is, this is next level, and I'll text some, some people that are like, hey, we're our, your prayer team. And then minutes later, it'll be like whoosh, restoration, unity. And it's like, wow, I've never, that would take days before, or 24 hours, you know? And in and, and submitting and acknowledging the backdrop of spiritual warfare in your marriage, Satan didn't wait. He could have waited for any other relationship. He didn't wait. He went right after the marriage. Why didn't he wait for the mother-in-law? He could have waited a generation and been like, all right, that'd have been way easier. Go after Eve when, when, when she's the mother-in-law, right? And, and Cain marries some lady. Like, he, he, he could have waited. He went right after the marriage. In Revelation, he went right, he's going after 
Mary, he wants to devour Jesus, the baby. There's constant attack on the marriage, on the spouses, particularly the women, the wife. When we abide in Jesus, he enables us to be in relationships. 1 John 1, 5 through 7, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we walk in the light, all of our stuff's exposed. We're not hiding anything. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the gospel. Do we preach the gospel to ourselves every day? I wanted to teach something on marriage and dive into it, but I had to lead us to Jesus first. Because if we just gave five principles before going through Luke and Acts and Revelation and going, hey, this is, this is the gospel. This is what's before us. So now here's how we do it. Once we know the gospel. The gospel. Jesus died on our behalf because he created us and we sinned against him. He came to save and forgive and he knows all the stuff. He knows all of it. He knows all the stuff you've done. He knows the stuff you're going to do today and tomorrow. And he's like, I'm perfect. I'm going to save you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to cleanse you. Come to me. Let's go. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from not most, not some, but all sin. And in this world, when we think about relationships, as we abide in Jesus, the challenging splinters that, that Paul said to Timothy, people are going to come and walk away from sound doctrine. They're going to think what they want to think, hear what they want to hear. And Paul wrote to the Romans in, in chapter 1 that people are going to worship the creation rather than the creator. And they, the world gives us two options. Either you hate me or you affirm me. You fill in the blank. Every week it gets more clear that the culture and the LGBTQ and whatever else they come up with, either you agree with my thought here or you hate me. You know, decades ago it was, hey, just accept me. And, and, and I knew it was going to be affirm me before we knew it. And, and Jesus doesn't call us to do either. We, we don't hate. Bless and do not curse those who are your enemy and, and make themselves your enemy. And, and we don't affirm because we can't rewrite what God's word says. That all of us, I love in 1 Corinthians 6, it says at the end of the list of adulterers, homosexual, murderers, it's like swindlers. Like Talking about going to everybody, right? Hey, have you been swindled out of something before? I'm, I'm still pretty bitter about that pilot I got that apparently had 500,000 miles, even though the odometer said 80. It's like you got swindled out. Oh, they're not. It's everybody. Swindlers, adulterers, drunkards. Homosexuals, and, and for, for us in relationship, we have to live in this world. It's not just the church and home. It's the world too, and then there's a spiritual warfare. So we acknowledge all these testimonies. In, in the past couple decades, I read a book that said, Born Again This Way, and it was from a, a woman that grew up in Solving, right down the 101 from us, and was a lesbian and came to know Christ and realized, man, I was lied to. And I tried to find God. I was seeking God. And all these people were in religious studies at Yale and said, no, God actually wants people to be gay. 
And, and David was gay. And she's like, I don't, I don't read that in here. I'm reading the same Bible. I don't see it. And Satan keeps twisting this. And so it breaks my heart. And it, if you're struggling with that, we're here to help. If you're struggling with alcoholism, if you're struggling with swindling people, like anything, it's not just what the culture's saying, this is a huge, big, crazy sin. There's murderers that probably could, hopefully, amazingly, could be sitting right next to a swindler, homosexual, adulterer, drunkard. Like, that's the church in Corinth that Paul's like, hey, you guys used to be that way. And then God saved you. That's why we preach the gospel. Because it's not you or me going out and, and telling the people on the overpass, whatever day they're there protesting, whatever thing they're protesting, and throwing Bibles at them, being like, Jesus, change. No, we're praying that Jesus would save them. That's the abiding part. And then God changes. God saves, then God changes. So in our places of work, we don't have the option to hate or to affirm. We have the option to speak the truth in love. And then we know we're going to win by losing. Because they're not going to just say, oh, you know what? That's a, logical, that's a logical statement. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm going to change my position. We know that. And so as husbands and wives, knowing the culture wants to redefine that for our kids, being prepared to have those conversations. Harper came out yesterday with a little, I think they're pop-it things where there's little things that go in and out and plastic and had five color or six colors on it. She's like, Dad, I can't wear this anymore. It's, it, it's, people will think I'm gay, right? I was like, well, Harper, you know, we've had it. And, and I don't just, even though I'm a pastor and there's a lot of things we talk about, I don't want to go after every little thing. Because she sat for a while and I was like, okay, now that you bring it up, how many colors are on that? Six. You know there's seven colors in the rainbow? No, there's not. That's not what my school taught. And we had this great conversation. No, there's seven colors. Seven's God's number. And they took it and deleted one because six is Satan's number, one below God. Isn't it interesting? It's man's number. It's, it's Satan's number and man's number is five. Isn't it interesting? Numerically, there's always these things tweaked. And Satan always wants to get in your head and just tweak it so slightly. Oh, you sinned one too many times. Oh, you did this. Go back to God's word. No, he forgives all things. He wants all people to be saved. And Jesus is the one who justifies and then sanctifies the process of making us think, act, and do like Christ. Without being justified, without believing, there is no change. God's word calls us to be reborn and transformed in God's likeness. May we speak the truth in love, not because we hate, not because we're affirming, but because as we see, these people in the world whatever they believe and think, they don't know Jesus. So we pray that they first would know Jesus and then Jesus will help their mind and their heart and their actions look like Christ because we all were that to some degree. The fourth way we bring God glory and experience God's love flowing to us and through us is doing, I do what I do because of what Jesus did. Ephesians 5.33 However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Wives, to respect your husband, I loved the, the opportunities I've had to, to counsel couples that are about to get married and, and see them come to know the Lord first before they get married. There's so many times where the churches I was a part of would be like, I don't, we don't know these people, you counsel them. It's like, perfect, I'm gonna tell them about Jesus and the gospel and then we'll see what God's gonna do. And it was so interesting because 
for, for some of the, the couples, they didn't know. There was like an 18-year-old couple, or even Jenna, my wife was like, are you sure? They're, I was like, well, they're going to get married either by me or in Las Vegas. Like, we, at least we can share the gospel, and they'll know the creator and the, and the why behind marriage. And it was amazing to see the cultural ties. Why would I respect him? Why would I submit to him? I don't need him. True, you don't. Like, you could probably run the show better without him, but just because all things are permissible, it's not beneficial for you, actually. God said it's not good for you to be alone either. You need each other. And the wife should respect and and that he should love. And it's this circle. And when the wife stops respecting, he stops loving. And when the husband stops loving, the wife stops respecting. And there's that crazy cycle they wrote a book about. But it's interesting when you think about it in, in comparison with Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Remove that blockage. Offer forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Boom. There's the respect. There's the love back. And you're moving forward again as you pursue Christ. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So when there's no forgiveness... There's no glory for God because God's the one who pursues us to forgive us so that we might forgive others because that's all we want to do is sin. Let's just be real. Like either we're sinning for, to make ourselves look better or we're sinning because we're mad at somebody. Like there's just either we're unwilling or we're worried. But if we're willing to receive God's love and forgiveness, then we're willing to give it. And we see that only happens when we're focusing on Jesus in these five ways to serve others at our cost. Secondly, when we focus on Jesus, we use his strength to endure. Thirdly, he enables us to be in relationship with others. Fourthly, we do what we do because of what Jesus has done for me. And then lastly, when we focus on Jesus, we see the other person, how God sees them. When Jesus is the focus in Philippians 2, we're trying to be humble and serve one another, then we continue to work down to serve others, that God will get the glory, that that our relationships, whether it's with a spouse, a friend, a family member, the world would see God's love flowing through us. When we focus on Jesus, we see the other person, how God sees them. Matthew 5, 43 through 48, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm sure a lot of kids were like, hey, that's great, Jesus. Man, I've always wondered what I should do to my enemy because I was going to stab them in the back or slit their throat at night when they're sleeping. But you know what? On second thought, I'll just pray for them. That's great Um, because they killed my dad and I'll just pray for them because no big deal, right? And no, this is huge. This is eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. In their culture still to this day, if you tell the truth, you're weak. You're supposed to lie and swindle and stab people in the back. That's how it works. So this is not just a little bit for our culture. It's extremely unpopular in the Middle East. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And you greet only your brothers. What, mo- what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And this is super encouraging, and it really wraps it up perfectly in verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh, perfect. Thanks, Jesus. How many times have you walked out of a sermon going, that was good truth, but how do I do it? I can't. I've heard feedback where it's like, that's good, but you can't tell people to do that because they can't do it. 
Exactly. That's the point. Jesus gets down and is like, why are you guys arguing about who's the greatest? Peter, can you give me that rag? And he starts washing everyone's feet. In this posture, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's doing the work at perfecting you. He's not in a hurry. Why are we in a hurry? Do what Jesus tells you to do. Don't try and do more or do less. Do the next right thing. As we pass the communion elements, may your heart be in this posture where you realize he gave his life for you. He left heaven to come to earth to show you the posture of a servant and say, you win. We win. We're more than conquerors. This life is not our home. Our eternity is secure. So the spouse is an opportunity for you to display God's glory as you love and serve them, seeking their better by serving them, regardless of how they treat you. And I know it's not lost on me how hard that is, especially for those of you whose marriage is crumbling or it's hard. And Jesus says these words, be perfect as, my heavenly, as our heavenly Father is perfect. The only way that we get in this position is if we first believe that we know that God is our heavenly father. Otherwise, we don't hear these words because we're blind and we're deaf and we're living for ourselves in the world. But when we're living for our heavenly father, then his spirit's in us saying, hey, here's what you need to do for your wife. Here's what you need to do for your husband. Here's what you need. I know you don't wanna do it, but you need to do it. And it's for my glory and for my love to flow through you to others so that all would know and be saved. And so when you have this posture right now, pray, God, where in my relationship do I need to be more loving? Where in my relationships can I be more loving? Who needs to see me serve them? Is it my spouse? Is it a friendship? Is it a sibling? Because guaranteed, when I, when I was starting to pursue Jenna, I was mindful of my father-in-law, who's now my father-in-law. If I didn't treat her right, he'd call me out. I had no doubt about that. And, and the hardest thing that we've had to endure as a family, seeing my sister-in-law go through hell, but seeing the heart of a father wanting to protect his daughter in, in the ultimate divorce, but the craziness of her husband at the time, now ex-husband, and seeing him want to say and do things that a just father would do. And getting to see through suffering and through all the junk, the heart of the father and God allowing us to endure that and seeing the testimony of the good for my niece and nephews that got to see God's heart and draw closer to God through the suffering. But no, even when marriages don't work, God's still on the throne. And God still uses it for our good and for his glory. And we don't see that when we're going through it. We don't see it years into it. But as we get through it, more years and more time, we see God working. And we look back and I can remember just seeing and hearing going, yeah, I, I get that. And I'm glad that we have a God who hates sin and a God who's a just God. But as we have the elements now, we have a God who saves. And somehow he's the same God. I'm still trying to figure it out with you all but we can praise him and receive that salvation. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power of the gospel, that you are good through the junk, through the trials, through the hardship, through the messiness of relationships. You've made us for that, 
that we would have an experience with you, that we would know you, that we would grow in that relationship with others into you, God. We pray for those who have yet to turn their life to you. Get on their knees and say, I believe, Lord, that they would go home and cry out and plead that you would save them. For those that feel like they're unsavable or unworthy of that love, may you silence the lies of the enemy, quiet the anxiety in their heart, and allow them to just see you and experience and receive you. We know, Lord, there's hard days that we've gone through and hard days ahead, but we know that you're there with us as you gave us your son. And as we cling to the cross and we look at the empty grave, we know there's new life and there's hope because you're on the throne. And we thank you for being the father that hates sin, but provides a way to remove that from us so that we might have a right relationship with you, knowing that love from a father that runs us down and that your goodness follows us all of our days to bring us opportunities to praise you, to share your glory, Lord, and and proclaim to the world your glory as we show them the love and kindness that we've received from you. We pray now that you'd open our eyes to see ways we can be loving and caring in all of our relationships, that you'd get the glory, especially in the marriage covenants that we've agreed to uphold for the better of our spouse. In Jesus' name, amen.